Hi, it's Brendan O'Neill here. We are now four episodes into the Brendan O'Neill show and it is going from strength to strength. The mission statement of this podcast is to create an unsafe space in which all ideas, beliefs and fads can be frankly discussed. And to that end, we have had Lionel Shriver on the threat posed by political correctness to artistic freedom. We've had Rod Little on why it isn't phobic to criticise Islam. We've had Jonathan Haidt on the causes of millennial fragility and campus censorship. And this month we have our first former world leader. More great guests are on the way. And now you can help to keep the podcast going by supporting it on Patreon. You'll get early access, exclusive material, and a lot more. So, to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash The Brendan O'Neill Show. Now, on with this month's episode. British people voted for Brexit, therefore, Brexit must happen. Unfortunately, because the British establishment hated the whole idea of Brexit... There's been this obsession with getting a deal. No deal that the EU will give Britain will be a good deal. Therefore, from the beginning, Britain should have been preparing for a no-deal exit. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a monthly podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. This month, I am delighted to be in Sydney and to be joined by Tony Abbott. Tony barely needs an introduction, but I'll do one anyway. He was the 28th Prime Minister of Australia from 2013 to 2015. He was leader of the Liberal Party from 2009 to 2015. And he has something of a reputation not only as an adept politician, but also as a politician who thinks and who is not afraid of tackling the big moral and philosophical questions as well as local and national issues. He is the author of numerous books, including The Minimal Monarchy and Why It Still Makes Sense for Australia, and the autobiographical book Battle Lines. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan, and I'll do my best after that lovely introduction <laughs> not to let you down. I want to start by asking you about political correctness, mm -hmm. because I know it's something that you have been talking about recently in relation to the launch of Kevin Donnelly's book, mm -hmm. How Political Correctness is Destroying Education and Your Child's Future. Mm -hmm. The first thing I wanted to ask you is how you would define political correctness, because it is one of those terms that is contested. Mm -hmm. Some people say it's just institutionalized politeness, why are you all getting hung up about it? Some people say it's just a new fair way to treat minority groups. Others, of course, and I think you're including this, would think it's more pernicious than that. So how would you define PC? Look, at one level, I suppose it's uh, simply uh, the zeitgeist as manifested in an approach to the issues of the day. At another level, it's a mistrust of and dislike for those things which have fundamentally shaped us as a culture and a civilization. So uh, the politically correct, uh, we're all in favor of same-sex marriage, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, they're uh, all in favor of Australia becoming a republic. Um, they are very critical of the uh, capitalist uh, free market economy. Uh, they tend to be against... Uh, private and Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to believe that the uh, Western canon is uh, a long and dispiriting tale of dead white males, uh, this kind of thing. And I don't pretend for a second that everything that made us what we are is uh, something that should continue completely unaltered forever. Uh, and I don't say that modern Western societies like Australia are uh, perfect. Uh, there's much that I would like to see changed. But I've got to say that uh, in my case, the things that I would most like to see changed uh, are more along the lines of restorations than reforms mm -hmm. because the challenge, as I see it, 
is for us to be our best selves and that normally means trying to work out what it is that we were really trying to do or really trying to say uh, and make the reality come closer to that. Well, I want to follow up on one of those things because I think one of the things that's particularly important about political correctness is its turn against the gains of history, particularly mm-hmm. the intellectual gains of history. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think you're, you describe it really well when you talk about the way in which the politically correct classes tend to look down their noses on the kind of the products of de- mm. dead white European men mm. and all these mm. other people mm. who they think are irrelevant or ought to be treated as irrelevant. And you, you recently said that for school children, mm-hmm. it is not enough for them to be able to read and write and count and so on. They also have to have a cultural literacy exactly, and right. a sense of where their nation comes from. And it's a point Hannah Arendt made. Hannah mm-hmm. Arendt said, the great responsibility of a society is to transmit the cultural knowledge of mm-hmm. the past to the new generation. And she made the point that if you don't do that, you create a real break. Mm. And do you think there's a danger that that break will occur? Very, very much so. Obviously, uh, this is uh, not really a society uh, marked by Christian faith anymore. And faith is between the individual and God. You either have it or you don't. Uh, you might wish for it. Uh, you might not wish for it, but in the end, you either have it or you don't. Our problem today is less the loss of Christian faith, it's the loss of Christian knowledge. Mm. Mm. Um, how many schools today tell the Bible stories, for instance? How many kids today are familiar with the New Testament parables, for instance? Uh, um, how many kids today are reading Shakespeare as Shakespeare wrote it? Uh, as opposed to watching some modern interpretation of Shakespeare. So I think there is a real danger. And uh, again, I, I don't say that all of the great books and artefacts of our civilization need to be put on some kind of a pedestal. I just think they need to be acknowledged and there needs to be a certain familiarity with them. Mm. If we treated indigenous culture, indigenous spirituality with the scorn that we generally have for uh, broader Western culture and traditional Christian spirituality, uh, we would be in all sorts of trouble. But again, it is typical of the politically correct that they put all cultures on a pedestal except Mm. their own. Yeah. I wanted to talk about... um Aboriginal culture mm-hmm. and education mm-hmm. because that's an area very close to your heart yeah. and has been for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And one point that you have made is that it's very important that while Aboriginal Indigenous school children learn about their culture, mm-hmm. it's also important that they learn in English and learn to speak in English and to be educated in English. Absolutely right. I'm, I am all in favour of schools, uh, particularly schools with a significant Indigenous population Uh, respecting the local Indigenous culture and wherever possible trying to preserve the local Indigenous language. Uh, The only country on earth where Aboriginal culture exists is ours and we have a duty uh, to respect it and where we can uh, to preserve it. But in the end, um, the job of the school is to turn out people who can function successfully in modern Australia and that means being literate, uh, numerate, uh, having a grasp of the basic principles Mm. of science and being reasonably familiar with what might be described as the Western canon. Now, uh, I think that's more than doable, uh, along with in the case of schools serving an Indigenous population, um, keeping alive language and learning and so on. Um, But any school which has kids that can't read and write in English is a school that's fundamentally failed of its purpose. I think in one of the most poisonous aspects of political mm. correctness in Australia, from my experience, is, is the view that they take of Indigenous communities, mm-hmm. which tends to be either this very romanticised view, or yeah. almost like the noble savage mm-hmm. view, which has very racial mm-hmm. undertones to mm-hmm. it, or that... Um, let them have their own culture and they don't need anything else. And so there's this, and it's, it presents itself as being very favourable towards Indigenous communities, but often ends up writing them off as incapable. Well, this is it. Uh, 
we want Aboriginal people to be proud of their Aboriginality and we want them to be proud of their heritage and we want the heritage to live and be passed on uh, to future generations. But uh, we don't want them to live in a kind of anthropological museum either. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want Aboriginal people to be able to operate effectively in the mainstream of Australian society as well. And if we don't uh, foster that ability, I think we're letting people down and we're guilty of uh, um, a benign uh, racism perhaps, uh, but certainly uh, we are falling into the trap of attributing uh, certain characteristics to people on the basis of their race. Uh, We're putting people into a box Mm -hmm. uh, based on their race or their culture and that, I thought, was what we were supposed to avoid. Absolutely. One of the things that strikes me about left-leaning, politically correct people in particular, is that they seem to be blissfully unaware of the fact that they are rehabilitating Mm. the very things that the left used to fight against, which was the idea that you should define people by their racial Mm. category or obsessively by their gender or by their sexuality. All those things that progressive movements actually spent a long time arguing against are coming back. Exactly right. My uh, understanding of... uh, the Labor Party in the old days was that it desperately wanted to see the working man and woman get a fair go, a perfectly laudable objective, uh, and the best way to ensure that that happened was to give them the very best schools mm-hmm. where these working-class kids weren't just given uh, uh, enough of an education Uh, to be wage slaves in a factory, Mm -hmm. but were given the kind of education that would enable the best of them to go to the best universities and uh, win Nobel Prizes and so on. Now, I I think that's a wonderful vision, but I don't think that's the vision of the contemporary Labor Party or certainly not uh, uh, of many of the people in the uh, contemporary Labor leadership. Mm -hmm. It's it's become almost countercultural, and I think that's sad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another aspect of political correctness I wanted to touch on was the, the way in which certain ideas and certain beliefs tend to be delegitimized mm-hmm. via political correctness. So, for example, if you look at the way in which they use the term phobia, mm-hmm. so if you are too critical of aspects of Islam, you're Islamophobic. Mm-hmm. In Europe, if you are overly critical of the European Union, which I want to come on to soon, you're Europhobic. Um, if you are opposed to gay marriage, you are homophobic. If you are worried about the influence of gender fluidity on young people, you are transphobic. So there's this kind of uh, language has been built up mm-hmm. to depict certain political opinions or moral beliefs, mm-hmm. and in particular religious beliefs, as unacceptable. Mm. And that's something that you've experienced, particularly in relation to the same-sex marriage uh, debate. Look, John Howard once uh, uh, offered this definition of a conservative. A conservative is someone who doesn't think he or she is morally superior uh, to grandparents and and i i think all of us should be very careful about putting ourselves up on a moral pedestal uh, yes this generation has more technical knowledge than previous generations but in terms of moral quality all generations have their blind spots every generation uh, is uh, is is uh, there uh, for self improvement as it were I don't regard myself as having a monopoly of wisdom and virtue, far from it. Uh, But I don't think the left uh, sees itself as uh, lacking that monopoly. I think they do have a monopoly. Um, I often used to say uh, in the parliament, look, uh, uh, I respect my opponent's goodwill. I just don't actually agree with their policies. Yeah. Sometimes I question their competence, but it seems to be almost a characteristic of the modern left that they refuse to allow any moral quality yeah. uh, to those who don't accept their precepts. Yeah, absolutely. It's this almost instinctive impulse to mm. write off an alternative mm. point of view or a confrontational point yep. of view as beyond the pale, unacceptable. Yep. 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 It, I, I wanted to ask you, a couple of questions about the same-sex marriage issue, because I think it 
I saw you do a talk about it in New York um, and I thought it was incredibly interesting. And I do think it touches upon a lot of the problems in contemporary society in terms of the corrosion of quite important institutions, also the way in which certain opinions are increasingly chased out of the mainstream as um, criticism of same-sex marriage has been. You have argued that um, the term marriage equality is actually a misleading term because uh, what's actually happening is the redefinition of marriage or the alteration of marriage so that it means something else. Th- that's a view you still hold to. Yep. Yeah, look, it is. And and look, um, the legal definition of marriage in Australia has been changed. Uh, I'm not proposing to try to change it back. Uh, I just hope that uh, those who uh, successfully argued for changing the legal definition are still prepared to accept that Others uh, regard marriage as uniquely between a man and a woman and if they want to uh, continue uh, to teach that, they should be allowed to do so. If they want to insist that in their churches or places of worship the only people who are allowed to get married are uh, men and women, uh, I think, again, that should that should be allowed. So... Um, I just hope that uh, in the brave new world of same-sex marriage, some people are allowed to continue to say that as far as they are concerned, uh-huh. marriage uh, is between a man and a woman. What others do is uh, their business. The th- one thing that struck me about the same-sex marriage issue was the swiftness with which public opinion changed. Absolutely and it was, right. It was stunning. And uh, I can't remember, there was an American writer who said, public opinion doesn't change this quickly. So he his argument was that there was a real sense of moral pressure, social mm. pressure on people to transform their view of marriage and and to accept same-sex marriage. And the thing that the question that raises for me, can we really put that down to the strength of the politically correct lobby who are mm. now so powerful that they can sweep aside even an institution like marriage or is it really down to the failure of the more conservative sections of society to defend what they consider to be important institutions? How would you place the dynamic there? Uh, I think there are elements of both. Mm. I guess when it comes to anything to do with the moral law or the traditional moral teaching, all of us are sinners, as it were. Very few of us are able to live our lives entirely in accordance with the traditional teaching Uh, For that reason, I think we uh, feel a bit sheepish when going into battle for it. Uh, I think that's part of of the element. But just just because people are not always able to uphold the ideal, there's no reason not to argue for it Mm -hmm. as the ideal to which all of us should should aspire. So, look, uh, you're dead right, uh, Brendan. Back in 2003 or four, I think it was, the Australian Parliament almost unanimously reaffirmed the traditional view that marriage was between a man and a woman, uh, and yet um, within scarcely a decade, not only uh, was the Parliament uh, very swift uh, to uh, to abandon that definition, but by a vote of 60 to 40 yeah. of the Australian public uh, uh, the uh, the traditional definition was abandoned. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, there was very much a sense at the time of the plebiscite that those who were uh, resistant to change were swimming against an overwhelming tide. Absolutely. In relation to that, the other thing that has concerned me, which you've touched upon, is the pressure that, that is then put on Catholic institutions mm-hmm. uh, and other religious institutions, but the, the, the thing that strikes me is Catholic schools, mm-hmm. which are really getting it in the neck, mm. in, including in Britain. I spent my whole childhood at Catholic schools, educated by Dominican nuns. Um, I've abandoned a lot of the ideas that they gave me, but it still concerns me that schools like the ones I went to are now being pressured by the government to teach things they don't believe. For example, that same-sex marriage is of equal moral value to opposite-sex marriage. And I think the politically correct don't understand how borderline tyrannical it is Mm. that a government can force institutions to teach things that they don't actually believe in. 
Brendan, I can I can but agree with you, and uh, this is why I say that this notion that these institutions are in some way establishment institutions or establishmentarian institutions is no longer in any sense true. Um, I think it's now the church which is countercultural. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the anti-church people who overwhelmingly dominate the uh, commanding heights of our society. Yeah. Well, it's extraordinary because the th- some of the bad things that the church used to do, mm. which would be to cast people out of polite society mm. or to demonize people for having the mm. wrong beliefs, is now done by the critics of the church. Mm. If you look at someone like Brendan Eich in America, who was dumped by um, uh, Mozilla, the internet company, because he donated to a, a pro-traditional mm-hmm. marriage campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's this, it's, it's like it's not enough to have the institution of same-sex marriage, they also feel the need to extinguish mm. any questioning or opposition to it. And, and, and look, yeah, I, I don't want to come across as some kind of a whinger who um, is uh, lamenting the good old days when uh, conservative, cultural conservatives uh, were, were the top dogs. Um, it's, it's fair enough that things get questioned. I mean, the great strength of Western society is that we do question things. Mm-hmm. We don't take things for granted. We are open to new ideas and and we change things where we come to the conclusion that what was is no longer serving our purposes or is no longer uh, an adequate reflection of our best values. Mm-hmm. That is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is the scale of change uh, the completeness of change and the scorn that the advocates of change have for those who have not yet surrendered that which until recently was orthodoxy, which I think is yeah. a little bit uh, dismaying about the modern era. In the same area, I wanted to touch on the issue of multiculturalism because you've said some very interesting things about multiculturalism. I think you've changed your mind on multiculturalism. Uh, But I wanted to ask you what you understand multiculturalism to mean. Well, Australia is a multicultural society and there's a sense in which we've always been a multicultural society. Um, The First Fleet, uh, as I understand it, uh, uh, was uh, was pretty multiracial. And back in those days, if you were a Scot... Uh, or an Irishman or a Welshman, uh, the differences between yourself and an Englishman were much more pronounced than mm. they might have become in subsequent times. So I think Australia has always been a multicultural society, uh, more multicultural than uh, is often imagined. I, I suppose the thing about multiculturalism is that uh, there are essentially two forms of it. There's a form that I don't much like, which is a kind of official or quasi-official encouragement for people to come to Australia uh, and maintain uh, a kind of separate cultural identity. And then I think there's a a benign uh, form of multiculturalism which just says, look, uh, come to Australia um, and how you become Australian Mm. is really up to you. We're confident that by virtue of the choice you've made to come to Australia, by virtue of the fact that you've voted with your feet for Australia, uh, you want to join our team uh, and fine, you do it in your own way and at your own pace. Mm. And that's what multiculturalism in practice has usually meant. And I think that's, uh, that's typical of a decent, genial and easygoing society such as Australia. I, I wonder if there's there might be a difference between multiracialism, which I which I'm incredibly supportive of. If you look at Britain or the US, where I spend a lot of time, incredibly racially mixed communities, and it works between multiracialism and multiculturalism. Because um, the thing that strikes me about the multi the ideology of multiculturalism, particularly in Britain, is that what it really is saying is that there is no singular or superior culture so british culture is actually not something that's all that great 
and therefore yeah. we need many different cultures, even, and that though, fragments communities. Even though Britain has in so many respects been the most successful country in human history. <laughs> I mean, English is the nearest thing we have to a common language around the globe. Uh, British institutions, uh, uh, from the common law to the mother of parliaments, um, uh, Britain's uh, high culture from Shakespeare and Dickens uh, uh, to its scientific achievements and all the rest of it uh, are, uh, are the wonder of the world. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, Britons have so much to be proud of and uh, countries like uh, Australia and indeed the United United States are in a sense uh, a credit to Britain which really gave us birth. So uh, no one in Britain should be apologetic yeah. uh, for his or her country um, and sure, uh, modern Britain is not perfect, modern Australia is not perfect, Britain of the 1800s wasn't perfect, uh, Britain of the 1700s or the 1600s wasn't perfect. But I would certainly say that modern Australia is better mm. than just about anywhere else. Uh, I'd say modern Britain is just is better than just about anywhere else, not as good as Australia, of course, <laughs> but... Uh, um, I think we should. It's natural to have a pride in your own society. It's natural to have a special identification with your own. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. But the great thing about countries like ours is that there has always been an openness to new people and new ideas. And that's actually one of the things that I think has made us more successful than other cultures and civilizations, which have been much less open to new people and new ideas. I agree, and I think so. I don't say that Western <clears throat> civilization is best. I would say that, uh, in my judgment, it's better. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think it's better is because it is always prepared to ask critical questions of itself, uh, and where the answers to those questions aren't very satisfactory, it changes. Mm. I've got some questions on Western civilization in, in a moment, but I wanted, uh, on the question of multiculturalism and so on and, and immigration, um, I think a part of the problem we face now is a failure of integration. So particularly in Europe. So in Europe, we have a situation where um, there have been large numbers of migrants coming into Europe in recent years. Um, and I think the key failure is not the act of mass immigration itself. I am the child of immigrants. Um, I understand immigration can be a very, very positive thing in society. But it's more the failure of modern Western societies to integrate people into their culture. And that often springs from the fact that society seems to be losing faith in their culture. And then the question of what immigrants are integrating into becomes a quite pressing and sometimes quite difficult one. Yeah, you, you look, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and there is no doubt that there are uh, parts of uh, European cities which uh, are very different from the flavour and ambience uh, of, a, of a couple of generations mm. back. And that might be charming in some respects, but it can also be... Uh, pretty confronting as well. I think countries have a, a right to keep their character and I certainly think that, pe pe that countries uh, have a right to expect newcomers to join the team. Now, um, that doesn't mean surrendering an affection for your original homeland. Uh, it doesn't mean... Uh, um, suddenly uh, dropping uh, characteristics of a former way of life. But nevertheless, if you move from North Africa to France, for instance, uh, you should not expect to reproduce North Africa in mm. Paris. You shouldn't. Yeah, I agree. There's an incredibly 
alarming case in Britain at the moment. There's a, a Pakistani woman called Ezia Bibi who was sentenced to death for allegedly mocking Muhammad, although she says she never did it. Mm -hmm. um, Supreme Court in Pakistan struck down her conviction and she's looking for asylum outside of Pakistan. And the conservative government in Britain has rejected her application for asylum on the basis that it might cause tension among Muslim communities in Britain. And I think that's an example of where if the you have multiculturalism... bending over backwards uh, to appease an instinct that should have no place yeah. in a tolerant, easygoing, diverse, modern society. Yeah, I, absolutely. I agree. Mm. Um, so on, on the um, issue then of Western civilization, yes. because it, it makes me laugh sometimes the things that cause controversy... Mm -hmm. Um, things that I think sound perfectly rational and suddenly there's a big storm. Mm -hmm. so, and some controversy that has been caused by you has been your insistence on defending the ideas of Western mm -hmm. civilization. And as you've just said, it doesn't mean you think it's the best mm -hmm. thing that will ever exist, but certainly that it is superior to other ways of life. And even making that kind of moral judgment is seen as something bad these days. Well, well it is what has shaped us. And just as it's right and proper for the Aboriginal communities of Cape York uh, to want their kids to have a good grounding in the high culture of Indigenous Australia, it is right and proper for us to hope that our youngsters will get a good understanding of the Western canon, uh, that they will have a reasonable appreciation of the history which uh, led to Australia being created and uh, that continues to shape the world in which we operate. And, and I don't think this is unreasonable or triumphalist. It's just natural that we should want to know about us and knowing about us means knowing something of this history. It means understanding um, the works of Shakespeare. It means familiar, familiarity with the New Testament. It means knowing the Bible stories. It means, it means, uh, uh, I guess, uh, dipping into the great thinkers who have shaped the modern world. Mm. You've talked about the cultural cowardice that afflicts mm -hmm. some Australian institutions. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you think? And I think there's a similar cultural cowardice in many Western institutions now. But do you think there is something? Um, specific about it in relation to australia because one thing that does strike me about australia it, 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 particularly mainstream institutions they do have a lot of hang-ups particularly about the past about the founding of this nation about the crimes that were that were undoubtedly committed in in the history of australia mm. it, it sometimes seems as if australia is in a in a continual state of repentance do you think that's healthy I don't think it's unique. Right. Um, I think that uh, if you go to Britain, um, the British establishment seems to be in a, in a lather of apologetics <laughs> over um, things that happened under the British Empire. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm sure there are some Americans who uh, uh, still um, think that the Plymouth uh, fathers should never have turned up. Uh, so, look, I, I think this is this, uh, I guess existential angst is common to all English-speaking societies mm. at the present time. And while there is absolutely no doubt that in creating these wonderful countries some injustices were done, uh, there is also absolutely no doubt that no one bends over backwards more than we do mm. to try to atone for them. Yeah. Uh, on, on the issue of colonial history i wanted to touch upon the the roads must fall movement in oxford because you are you were a Rhodes scholar um and you had that great line where these are the the, the students at oxford most of them Rhodes scholars who want to remove a statue of cecil Rhodes because they say it causes them mental harm when they see it it make it reminds them of the crimes of colonialism and so on um and you said removing the statue would substitute moral vanity for fair-minded inquiry so what do you think is happening on Western campuses now in relation to these students who want to remove certain statues, change the names of buildings, censor controversial speakers? There does seem to be this growing intolerance. Look, I just form in the. I just think in the end, it's a form of self hatred. Right. Um, 
and I find it inexplicable, absolutely inexplicable, but nevertheless it is real. Yeah. And the job of 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 people like myself, as I see it, is to try uh, gently where possible, uh, forthrightly where necessary, to um, put a common sense position, which is that you can't rewrite history. You shouldn't judge the past by the standards of the present. And while we should always strive to be better, we are usually at our best when we build on our strengths. Mm. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. It would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. I want to ask you quick, briefly about freedom of speech because one of the, I think one of the problems on campuses, and this is really pronounced in Britain and the US, and I think it's coming to Australian campuses too, is this incredibly cavalier attitude towards freedom of speech. So speakers are no platformed or they are outright banned. On some British campuses, pops, certain pop songs are banned, um, certain newspapers are banned, students aren't allowed to wear certain anti, uh, fancy dress outfits. Um, how would you seek to convince this new generation, these supposedly fragile millennials, snowflakes as some people kind of pejoratively call them, how would you seek to convince them that freedom of speech is actually a pretty important ideal? Probably the best thing you could do would be to send them all on a holiday to Saudi Arabia or somewhere, somewhere like that. Travel is often very good for people <laughs> because, uh, at least in the case of Australians, you normally come back with a much better appreciation of your own country. Greater familiarity with places which lack the things we take for granted normally gives you a deeper understanding of the merits of that which has made us what we are. So, look, that's, I suppose, a simple suggestion. (laughs) But uh, uh, there was a phrase, I think, uh, that the Jesuits occasionally used, invincible ignorance. Um, I dare say they probably deployed it against (laughs) me on occasions. Uh, Maybe there's just too much invincible ignorance (laughs) around these days. So keeping on the free speech thing for a moment, I wanted to ask you, where you currently stand on Section 18C yeah. of the Racial Discrimination Act, because I know that um, your it government... Was a, it was a difficulty for yes. us. Uh, yes. I said in opposition that we would uh, uh, modify it, that we were against it in its current form. Uh, we came up with what, with the wisdom of hindsight, was a very clunky uh, proposal for amendment. Uh, it was um, uh, comprehensively slammed, Uh, by uh, all sorts of people, including the state Liberal premiers. Uh, So, look, um, it's plainly wrong that you should fall foul of the law simply for speech which uh, offends or insults. Mm. Um, Offending and insulting people uh, may or may not be desirable, but it's almost unavoidable Mm. uh, in terms of uh, ordinary public debate. Um, any country which says that it is wrong uh, in principle to offend or insult um, it ha- it doesn't do- does not have truly free speech. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's a it's a huge problem in the United Kingdom. Mm. People have been arrested for telling jokes. Mm. A man was taken to court and convicted for teaching his dog to do a Nazi salute for a joke. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, incredibly clever surreal. Dog. Very clever dog. <laughs> Um, but one one case in Australia, I mean, there have been, as you know, there have been numerous 18C cases. But the one I think that was shocking to people around the world, as well as in Australia, was the case of Bill Leake, who, for doing an Aboriginal cartoon, yeah. which was not a racist cartoon. It was actually, tough. It, it, was a conf- it was a tough and confronting cartoon. It was a confronting, yeah, and but, designed but, to be. But, but it was dealing with a very confronting <clears throat> subject matter. So, so... Yeah, I thought it was it was it it was a sign of just how over the top uh, these uh, do-gooder uh, busybody busybodies had become. These official do-gooder busybodies 
persecuting someone like Bill Leake, who was one of our great artists in every sense, it was just wrong. And and I think that did help to illustrate just how over the top the whole thing had become. Um, moving on, I wanted to ask you some questions about climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one, I think your answer to this is no, but let's see. Do you still think the science of climate change is crap? I think the exact expression was that the so-called settled science of climate change is crap. The notion that there is a so-called settled Mm. science is crap. Look, uh, I said often enough when I was the party leader that climate change uh, is real, mankind makes a contribution, uh, we should take effective action to deal with it. But then I also said that I didn't think for a moment that it was uh, the biggest and most pressing issue we faced, uh, and that I certainly didn't intend to take action against climate change, which would uh, badly damage people's cost of living uh, or destroy industries and cost jobs on a large scale. And that remains my position. Look, um, let's try to reduce emissions, uh, but let's not impoverish ourselves in order to do so, because then it's uh, socialism masquerading as environmentalism. And, and so I think I've been pretty consistent about all of this. Uh, and I, I, I regret that well-intentioned governments, including the Howard government, uh, including to a lesser extent my own, have put in place policies which were designed to improve the environment, which have had a whole lot of unforeseen adverse consequences for our economy, for our cost of living and for jobs. Uh, I think the point you make about the the idea of settled science being crap, completely agree, because it's one of those those issues through which any kind of criticism or dissent or questioning is very casually written off. And in this sense, it's not, you're not called a phobic, you're called no, a denier. Yeah. So it's that kind of very yeah. inquisitorial term. You're a denier of the truth. Yeah. And, and look, my understanding of the physics, and I'm not a scientist, but, but my understanding of the physics is that all things being equal, an increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide should raise the temperature. But the atmosphere is an extraordinarily complex uh, mechanism. Um, there are vast forces at play here. And the idea that this is a uniquely a significant factor, uh, that it is uniquely the swing factor, uh, is, uh, is, is far from settled. And uh, certainly I've come across very reputable scientists who say that sunspot activity has a much bigger impact on climate than uh, than carbon dioxide, that oscillations in the Earth's orbit uh, or the movement of the sun uh, have a much greater impact uh, than carbon dioxide on climate. So look, by all means, let's do what we reasonably can to, uh, to limit and, if possible, reduce uh, mankind's carbon dioxide emissions, but um, it, it, I think, would be a big mistake uh, to impoverish ourselves uh, in this cause. And most of the people who say, oh, we've got to make drastic changes are people who can well afford to yeah. live with those drastic changes. And, and I instinctively, I am instinctively deeply uncomfortable with rich people telling poor people that they've got to live more difficult lives uh, in order to accommodate the moral sensitivities of rich people. I completely agree. My key issue with climate change alarmism is that um, I agree with you. I, I, I suspect that there is a human contribution to the warming of the planet. Um, but what? But even to the extent that the science might have some value, the problem is then it gets transformed into a moral crusade uh, against people living in a particular way or against people driving too much or even more worryingly for a place like Australia against entire <laughs> against entire industries, particularly the coal industry. And I've always thought that one of the reasons why the climate change discussion is more lively in Australia than it might be in Britain and other countries is because you guys still do a lot of 
excavation of the earth and digging coal and it's an enormous industry and it employs a huge number of people and therefore there is this almost instinctive pushback against the this crusade that wants those things to be wound down look again i i I don't know why it's a particularly big issue here obviously it is a particularly big issue here i don't get the impression that it's a small issue in the united kingdom uh, I think probably in the United Kingdom, the Conservative Party uh, just acquiesced in the whole yeah. climate change push. I think that's probably why it's less of an issue there yeah. because there's been more of a surrender mm. to alarmism. You once made this comment, which always makes me laugh, where you said, um, you, you say that, of course, if we can take actions to limit our impact, we should. But... Uh, you, you argued that policies, obsessive policies to combat climate change is like primitive people who once killed goats to appease the, the volcano, volcano gods. gods. So, um, but th- I think there's truth in that because mm. there's what's really striking is that often environmentalists push quite small measures that are largely to do with ha- changing, you know, recycling your rubbish mm. or not eating too many mm. hamburgers. Uh, and and it does become a for a ritualistic form mm. of correcting people's behaviour. Would you still stand by the argument that there's a primitive component to this idea that if we make all these sacrifices, the world will improve in ten years, fifteen years? Well, time? just because we are no longer religious doesn't mean that we've lost the religious impulse. And uh, having largely given up Christian faith, yeah. I think a lot of people are in the market for different faiths and maybe environmentalism has become a bit of a religion substitute for some people it it, it certainly has a lot of similarities Mm. uh the thing that always strikes me is that a lot of the stuff i used to hear at school which was the end of the world you'll be judged for your sins uh you have to give up up meat on fridays give up meat on fridays all those kind of self-punishing aspects of the faith i was brought up in now seem to be rehabilitated in a secular form don't drive don't eat meat (laughs) Don't go, don't don't travel by air. It's all coming back. (laughs) You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. Okay, so I want to ask you about Brexit. Mm -hmm. You wrote a fantastic piece for The Spectator in in Britain, and it was a very popular piece, very widely read. Mm -hmm. Brexit's in trouble. Mm. Um, all sides of the establishment are not in Britain are not particularly in favour of it. The European Union is doing everything it can to try and undermine it. What do you think can be done to save the idea of Brexit that 17.4 million people voted for? Yeah, well, well, Brendan, I think it's Mrs May's Brexit plan which is in trouble rather than the idea of Brexit. Uh, the British people voted for Brexit and therefore Brexit must happen. The problem is that the plan, as I understand it, that uh, the government is now, or at least the Prime Minister is putting forward, is a kind of half-in-half-out plan where you remain bound potentially inevitably uh, by various European rules without having any any say uh, over those rules. Now, I think that's a grievously unsatisfactory situation and if I were in the Commons, uh, I certainly wouldn't be voting for it, but that wouldn't mean I'm against Brexit. Mm. It would just mean that, like Mrs May some time ago... Uh, uh, no deal is better than a bad deal. Now, it seems to me the EU takes the view, and and they are theological about this, the EU takes the view that uh, the EU is in some way a morally superior uh, alternative to uh, nation states. And once a nation state has sublimated itself in the European Union, there's no going back. That seems to me, as an outsider, to be the view of the EU. Now, uh, because Britain uh, wants to leave uh, and because this, in their view, is against the natural order of things, they are desperate to punish Britain. Uh, No deal that the EU gives Britain will be a good deal. Mm. 
no deal that the EU will give Britain will be a good deal. Therefore, from the beginning, Britain should have been preparing for a no deal exit. And what the British people, what the British government should have said to the EU uh, a couple of years ago is they should have said, look, this is what we would like. We would like a situation where there were uh, no tariffs or quotas on goods, uh, full mutual recognition of standards and qualifications, uh, free movement of people for work at high wages, not welfare, um, uh, all existing EU legislation uh, will apply in Britain until we say it doesn't, no future EU legislation will ap apply in Britain unless we say it does, uh, and your tribunals and courts will have no further jurisdiction over ours unless we specifically decide mm. that they should. Um, where there are projects that we uh, want to continue with you, uh, we will pay our fair share as always. But apart from that, uh, there will be no divorce bill as such. Uh, we will look after EU property and EU obligations in Britain and we will surrender any claim that we have on stuff there. Uh, likewise, you can surrender any claim that you have on stuff here. That's what Britain should have offered the EU uh, and it should have prepared to do that unilaterally. Uh, that's what should have happened. And then it would have been up to the EU to come to Britain and say, well, actually, we'd like something different. And then mm -hmm. Britain would have been in a position to say yes or no. Unfortunately, because the British establishment hated the whole idea of Brexit, uh, there's been this obsession with getting a deal. Mm. But the only deal you were, only, you were ever going to get uh, from the EU was a bad deal. That's the fundamental mistake. Now, I think there should be urgent preparations made for a no-deal Brexit. The very worst thing that could happen... Uh, would be that this whole nightmare should be extended uh, other than, I suppose, that Britain should be locked in forever uh, to something which is a state of vassalage. And that would be a tragedy for the world uh, as well as being utterly humiliating uh, for a country and a people who have every reason to be so proud of what they've achieved. Tony Abbott, thank you very much. Hey, thanks, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back next month with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next month. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.